Hey, good evening, everybody. I know it's kind of late. Uh, we're on what, an hour and a half later, two hours, hour and a half later from what we normally would be doing on a Sunday. But that's because I'm working on and, uh, a couple projects over on TikTok. And uh, Karen, me and Karen Clark and I have been working diligently to put together some content for a show that we're going to be doing on, or a couple of things we're going to be doing over on TikTok. So I spent some time doing that today, which is why we're on late tonight. Tomorrow we will be, I don't know what time, we will do a debut show on TikTok. And uh, I'm real excited about it. And that's Karen Clark and I. By the way, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host. Same way ahead. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you think you might have a paranormal issue, we can help you. It might take us a while to get to you, but uh, we will. And if we can't get you right away, we do have mediums on staff like Karen Clark and a couple, a few others that can call you. And in most cases, if it is paranormal, calm things down for you until we can get out there. Okay. So you're not going to be terrified for eternity. Anyway, welcome tonight. Um, if you're watching from Facebook, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're watching from YouTube, welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you like what you hear, uh, you know, don't hesitate but to hit those thumbs up and the smiley faces and all that good stuff. Uh, also, uh, hit that follow button on Facebook if you haven't done so already. That goes for uh, YouTube as well. Hit those smiley faces and all that good stuff. And uh, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. But what it does when you hit the smiley faces and all that is it moves us up in the algorithms, and that's YouTube and Facebook. It, 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 and the more we're in the algorithms, the more people see us. Okay? Just our, just our usual bunch. The more people will see us. So that's, that, that's the whole point of adding those smiley faces and stuff. Anyhow, uh, welcome. And as I was saying earlier, uh, normally on a Sunday when we're doing this book read, I will broadcast additionally on YouTube, uh, on uh, TikTok. But for the last month since I've, I've been reading, on the, and, and it could be the other book or something, somebody has turned me into TikTok and gotten me banned for seven days. And because Karen and I are, are going to be launching our, our show tomorrow, you know, the, our project tomorrow, I didn't want to take a chance of getting banned, so we're just broadcasting on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, and uh, Facebook today to read this book. It's Anna Maria Manalos, and it's, it's, it's a co-author, and I can't remember the guy's name, but the, Anna Maria Manalos, The Night Visitants, is what we're going to be reading, part two. Uh, we had uh, some technical difficulties, I believe, on Thursday, and so I ended up reading uh, the first part of that book, read Thursday night, so we're going to continue with that. Every Sunday, for those folks that uh, haven't been here before, every Sunday evening I read from a paranormal theme book, whether it's a true story, you know, whether it's based on a true story or whether it's, it's just a fantasy kind of book. I do read paranormal books every Sunday. So that kind of gets us out of the weekend. And, you know, if you're at home and having your dinner or whatnot, you can sit back, put your feet up on the couch or lay down on the couch or your recliner or maybe even lay in bed and just listen to the book, you know. Uh, and it's kind of relaxing for everybody to kind of wind down from the weekend. So that's what this is about today. And so, uh, again, for my California Haunts team, you know, if you're, if you're looking for us, you can find us all over Facebook. You can also find me on Instagram under Ghosty Gal. It's all over case. You can find us over at TikTok. And uh, let me make sure I got things going here. Let me sure my buttons are pushed. I, t I tend to turn things off when I'm working on the computer, so hang on. Okay. Okay, now I can hear things better. But uh, yeah, you can find us at Twitch under CalHaunts. I believe we're, we're CalHaunts or California Haunts over at Twitter. So we are everywhere. It's easy to find us, TikTok, California Haunts. So you can find us anywhere. So if you want to get a hold of me or whatever, you can do that. And uh, the assorted California Haunts over at Facebook. But like I said, I'm not going live to TikTok tonight for fear of getting banned. And it's been happening more frequently than you think. And, and I just don't want to take a chance since Karen and I are going to be launching our, our, our stuff tomorrow, finally, together. Anyway, this book we're reading is The Night Visitants. Uh, there's more to the thing, but I like to call it Night Visitants by Anna Maria Manalo. We've, we've read her books before here, several of them. So I'm really excited. We are in Chapter 8 now of that book because, like I said, Thursday we had technical difficulties, and uh, so, the, so I had to back out of the guests, so I decided to start the read on the book. So we will be reading uh, her book until, of course, it ends, and then we're going to be picking up Lynn Monet's book, and that's that, that, that's that, that's a true ghost story of, of what happened to her and her family. So that's that, that's uh, lined up behind this. Okay, tomorrow night I'm going to let everybody know ahead of time. Tomorrow night uh, I won't be here live; it'll be a recording. But 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 
it is the Tinkerbell video, you know, the, the uh, Gina Rock video. It lasts for it's an hour and a half um, interview, really great interview. You learn some stuff about Disney and you learn stuff about Gina, and, and it's really interesting to hear. Gina is, is, the, is the longest tenured Tinkerbell to ever fly over Disneyland 21 years, 21 years. So she is going to be on tomorrow, and that'll be over at YouTube, just to let you guys know. Tuesday, um, we do have a live guest. Wednesday, we're going to be live. Thursday, we're live. So, you know, just uh, just tomorrow night, we're going to have Gina. And I, I think you're going to like that video. I think you're going to like it a lot. All right. That being said, um, let's get into reading this book. And we are in Chapter 8. And I've got an extra spotlight I'm going to turn off because it's really not necessary. Let me lean forward. Having it tonight because you're, I mean, there's really nothing to see. Hang on. Yeah. See the difference in the lighting? It's really that there's really nothing to see because I'm going to be reading a book. So, like I said, you don't even have to sit down and watch me on the screen. Just leave me on in the background. I have people that uh, do their laundry and stuff. So, they're carrying me down, you know, down, they're carrying me up and downstairs and into their basements and things like that while I read. But this is a way to unwind and get to the end of the weekend, grab a hot cocoa, you know, whatever strikes your fancy, and uh, just listen to me read, right? And uh, The Night Visitants is a very interesting book so far. So off we go. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Anna Maria Manalo, thank you for the books. I really appreciate it. So here we go. I'm going to be switching off. I'm reading it off an of ebook, off of Amazon. So I will not be able to see comments on the screen, just to let you know. I might check back, but I'm not going to double screen anything either. I'm, <laughs> I'm too old and complicated. It's complicated for that stuff. So here we go. The night, vis uh, the night visitants. Chapter eight. Tom. Well, what's up? Hang on. The night visitants. A ufologist, an experiencer, and the undefinable. That's our book. So chapter eight is Tom. So here we go. When I began thinking about things. It is surprising to me how things turn out, not as I plan, but how events seem to conspire to make things happen in response to my deepest wishes. A synchronicity which I cannot, in my analytical process, fathom. I went to bed later than usual, having second thoughts about joining the UFO group on a live meditation. Frankly, I didn't know Ron enough or felt like he'd fit into our little paranormal group. If he did fit... Would I feel obligated to join him in his meditation group in Connecticut? Perhaps yes, perhaps no. I thought about group meditation all week. Shortly after dinner on Friday, I mulled, deliberated, and kept looking at the group's forum page as members posted. Some interesting information, some just sharing things up from others' feeds, and some merely drop a tidbit about what they overheard. Some posts I've seen before and commented on before. They welcomed me as I was considered a legitimate researcher, having attended a conference about my own brand of UFO-related material, which I had extensively blogged about. My next step was to write a book about what I'd found, adding information from blog postings, then attend a conference again and talk, and talk about it. I had, by now, found out a lot. I focused on the East Coast of the United States, where I was keenly aware of the events unfolding close to home, the Hudson Valley. My own thoughts led me to research information, talked to witnesses in, in and outside of social media, blogged about my theories, and got followers, as this day and age would call them, in my time, fans. A lot out there, despite the ridicule, came forward with sightings and encounters. Earthquakes seemed to be correlated to the sightings. Yes, earthquakes and whole things. I pulled out a U.S. map and homed in on my home state of New York and looked over all the states on the eastern border. I had enough to make a book, including content from my blog postings, as it became more and more data-driven, based solely on the facts from every event recorded by me and from others who shared the information willingly. Every state had their plethora of sightings. Some even had flaps. Was there a reason why some areas had more sightings than others? Was there a correlation between sightings of craft and something else? Who or what was likely to produce a UFO sighting? I must publish my findings on the sightings I found so far on the East Coast. A driving feeling, almost a compulsion, indeed a passion, was pushing me, leading to a fitful sleep as I mulled over the book. As the map emerged with the dots, 
denoting a sighting or an encounter, I form the outline of my book. I will call it, They Are Here. As the first book took shape, the first of a series which I didn't know at the time, I finally slept. Once I slept, I dreamed. One dream, one night, would be more compelling in its vividness. On this particular night, I went to bed later than usual after scouring the internet. I had written another blog entry, keeping my intent presence, my internet presence in the active phase. I shut the laptop after one last check on the forums and entered the bathroom to get ready for bed. As I went about my nightly routine, I realized the time was late and then began thinking about the possibility of intently concentrating on getting something or some craft to show itself in the sky, perhaps with Tim and Chuck as a group experiment. We had never done anything like this before, and I wished in the back of my mind that I had asked Ron for more specifics on technique, which he and his group only had. The process seemed similar to when I meditate, though I must admit, I fell asleep in one of those sessions. Perhaps I needed something that didn't recline or encourage me to doze. Perhaps. As I brushed my teeth in preparation for bed, I looked out the window at the rural landscape, punctured by fields of corn, wheat, a pasture, and the deep wooded areas adjacent to my property. Before I knew it, an entire hour seemed to have passed. I was perhaps lost in thought, thinking about the subject matter of group meditation. It held me so absorbed in the grip of my thoughts. Time, so evasive, yet so important, was again wasted on daydreams, and it was past midnight. I retired to bed to dream. At least, I thought I did. As I fell into the zone of twilight wakefulness, I watched my wife of 41 years fade from view. Her fingers ceaselessly forming her own pattern in the form of yarn, one thread after another, and her adept crocheting hands. I came to full wakefulness and glanced absently at the clock to my left. Somehow, the clock was on the left. I wondered who put it there. I must have gone to bed on the wrong side. The clock, digital, was usually to my right. 3 a.m. A movement. I was lying on my back. I looked down and noticed my wife wasn't in the room. Instead, there were two men. One man, dressed in American Indian garb, was towards the right side of my bed. Another, in shadow, seemed to be standing on the opposite side, my left near the clock. My mind said, who broke into the house? Where is Rita? I attempted to move, increasingly alarmed. I tried to lift one arm. I couldn't. My arms, pinned on both sides, appeared paralyzed. I willed myself to move. I couldn't. Then I noticed the two men were both Indian. They were both looking down at me, and I stared up in disbelief at what I now know to be fear. The bedroom door. The doorway should have been on the right. Instead, it was on the left. One of the Indians approached. I found myself unable to speak as he loomed near me. The man touched my chest. I seemed to be holding my breath, terrified as I was. I managed to exhale. Then, I felt my body rise over the bed, that sudden weightlessness. I was floating. Then I woke up. The doorway was on the right again. The clock on the nightstand on the right again. The bed was pushed against the left wall as it had always been. Someone, or one of them, in the dream, had told me I didn't need a group to meditate or to see a ship, a UFO. The ships would come, he said to me. All I have to do is ask. Just ask. Hang on. Okay. There we go. Chapter 9. Thursday night was a breezy spring night, alive with the telltale scent of newly mown grass and the heaty scent of jasmine. Tom emerged on the patio after the evening news and sat on one of the Adirondacks. It had only been just it had only been just over a week since he and Chuck met with the man who called himself Daniel. A few days since he met with Ron of the meditation group. The wood creaked under Tom's weight, a mere 161 pounds and five foot ten. He inspected the soles of his sneakers. Excuse me. Reeboks, and noted he still had tree sap clinging to one sole where his weight tended to shift heavily. He inspected it with a twig and a memory of the remote house and the man Daniel 
and the man Daniel reached his senses. What an odd man. Tom looked up at the sky, bright with flecks of stars, and opened opaque black in between. In the distance, he glanced at the tree line, which began the forest and ended his property. On the horizon, cars flew past, the road leading to Albany. From where Tom sat, the sounds of traffic were almost in, in, imperceptible for his human ear to hear, but he knew it was there, like the steady hum of an air conditioner. Tom inhaled, taking in the sweetness of the grass, pulling close a thin jacket despite the sudden onset of an uncharacteristically warm day. He shut his eyes and allowed the sounds to lull him as he began his meditation. God, my allergies, guys. He opened his eyes and settled deeper into the Adirondack. Behind him, the shadows above the roofline lengthened, but Tom didn't notice. He was thinking about the dream with the American Indians. Just ask, the man had said. He shut his eyes again, willing himself to reach that meditative state. He achieved one time without falling asleep. This time, Tom had a mission. He wasn't just lost in his thoughts. Dang, my allergies, I'm so sorry. Tom concentrated on his breathing as one of the admin had told him the group on the page. Had told the group on the page. He noted with, with a finger a steady lowering of his pulse as he allowed the mantra to overtake him. Almost by instinct, as instructed, he exhaled through his mouth. Slow, steady, shallow. Then, deep breaths. Tom's eyes fluttered as he began as he became less conscious of his surroundings. Asking, asking, hear me. Asking you. Hear me asking you. Earlier that evening, Tom had made a quiet decision during dinner with Rita. He decided, as the dream told him, to meditate alone and ask. He knew the silences had become too many in the past several weeks since he had begun his first book and added more technical jargon to his growing blog. However, Knowing him well, Rita didn't interrupt his thoughts. She was content to savor the chicken teriyaki takeaway, take a first Japanese restaurant outside of Albany, and the growing silence of the kitchen table. He felt her watching him eat, absorbed in his own thoughts, as he distractedly munched the cuisine she had tipped handsomely for, the Uber Eats driver beanie. It was the curiosity and concern of a spouse he'd known half of his life and deeply loved. It was a companionable silence, comfortable and steeped in acceptance in a tidy and cozy kitchen they defined through their hobbies. She sensed him well. He would grow to become even more absorbed as his book progressed and the research more intense. She would patiently wait as she always had. In years past, it was his blog. This time, it was a book. Asking, Tom said to himself, with a dissimilistic state. Outside, the grass rippled as if uncut. Then, a block of time passed. Hours. Suddenly, Tom was in bed in his pajamas. The last thing he would recall was Rita reaching for her tablet and iPad. Her feet up on a hassock, she read. The grass was very green, greener than Tom would e even remember intimately, knowing, knowing it like the back of his hand, as he had been mowing the expansive back and side yards since they moved in there long ago. Suddenly, Tom was standing in the hallway outside his bedroom door. He was looking into, into his own bedroom. Rita, as he expected, read from her tablet. There he was, watching himself. Tom was watching his body leap out of the bed. Tom saw himself dash to the bedroom window, the sky. A glimmering band of lights. The sky was filled with UFOs. The crafts were stationary, hovering in line. It was as if they were all waiting for him. Then Tom was outside again. On the grass, at the edge of his property, he woke up, walked down a path through the tree line and into the forest. Tom felt his feet against the dampness. His feet were bare. Leaves. Fall leaves. Tom was confused. It was springtime. Leaves left to rot from the year before. Tom kept walking and mused. I must be dreaming. He had to be, as his feet were bare, he thought. Tom followed the path through the woods, but his past as Tom, as Tom walked. The hollowness of the forest surrounded him. It hugged him, begging him to move on. Ahead, he spots a light through the trees, a silence suspends him. He pauses, riveted to the light. He continues down the path, closer. 
As he approached, the object appeared as an egg-shaped craft. It was glowing, glowing on a tripod. As Tom approaches the clearing, he sees a figure, a man, a humanoid, bright. A being made of light. The man stood next to the glowing object facing Tom. Tom felt himself approaching, undaunted. He paused a few feet away in awe. The being of light was speaking to Tom's thoughts. I need to borrow your energy. How? Tom asked. Don't worry, we'll do it for you. Tom stood studying the ship on a tripod and noticed how it was six feet wide. It was just a bit higher than the man of light. Dimly, Tom wondered how he would fit the craft, fit in the craft. Too small, he thought, as his feet felt the damp earth between his toes. Again, without speaking, the man read his thoughts. My partner is ill. Come. The ship was enormous. Tom was puzzled how something so small could be so vast inside. It didn't compute. Nothing was computing. A room, stark white. A man in bed sits up as if expecting Tom. Tom stood waiting, wondering how his own energy could heal the man. The next thing he knew, he was being escorted out of the craft and was again walking down the path back to the house. He startled as if falling. He was alone in bed. The clock was on the right as before. It was 2.30 a.m. The sheets under him were cold, as if he just landed on them. Tom quickly pulled the sheets away that covered his legs, staring at his feet. His toes stared back at him. They were clean. He could still feel the mud and dead leaves from seconds ago. Just a few feet away, Rita busily typed on her iPad. In a few days, Tom once again would have a dream. 10. Chapter 10, Riverville, Connecticut, 1955. Move this back here real quick. Okay. On the upper edge of Litchfield County sits farmland and small villages, dotted here and there with black shuttered homes historic and unyielding to the test of time. A town, still a village, sits near the town of Salisbury, known for colorful history that is documented in the archives of the town's historical society. On Riverville's long one-lane street, a handsome brick building, five stories high, marks the center of the street. It would have appeared more like a building you typically see in Brooklyn or even the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The wrought iron fire escape jigsaws past its windows from the second floor up and stops at the flat rooftop. From the street, hardy plants could be seen peering from the edges of the roof a garden during the summer's blistering heat. On the ground floor, a thriving grocery and dry goods store was the center hub for the village's commerce. Still personal, with only a few hundred inhabitants, the townspeople considered the She Dream store an essential spot for everyone need, everyone's needs, every everyday needs, flour, sugar, milk, butter, and sewing items, as well as farm tools, abound in the, in the well-stocked wooden shelves. The She Dreams, the building's owners, made their home in the building as well. Above the store with a tundra green sign and a beige background is the Scott family of four, a close relation, a close relation. Jeremy Scott, disabled and partially retired, managed the store in his brother-in-law's absence when he enlisted in the war. On the third floor were, were the She Dreams, Colin and Millicent, whose parents bought the building in 1941 before Colin's enlistment. In a tank battalion. His wife Millicent, Millie, was a petite woman with sparkling eyes which turned steel blue and coal on a dime. A few years after Colin's return from, the, from World War II, they had their first child, Shailene. Colin and his wife Millie would eventually have three children living with them. Just three stories above their store, Shailene, then Steve, and finally Annie. Up on the front bedroom, of the brick building's third floor, Shailene, the oldest of the three, pulled her tights up and shrugged on a houndstooth dress with a pleated skirt. She didn't have many dressed-up clothes, but it was a Christmas present from her mother who wanted her to be presentable on the first day of school. She was now in first grade. Near her, her bed was neatly made. A frilly bed cover in lime green with a pink teddy bear sitting across the wall of the bed Sorry, sitting against the wall, sitting against the wall the bed was pushed against. The pink teddy bear was old, 
but precious. And Shailene laughs at the stuffed toy lovingly and cuddled against it at night. Many nights, it would keep her company, even when she trembled in fear, when they arrived from the drop ceiling right above her bed. The bed. A single wooden affair, set adjacent to a large window that opened onto the fire escape and the main street below. Now dressed, Shailene peered out the window. Through the early morning mist, past the steel stairs of the fire escape, people milled about outside the store below. Children her age, some older, had begun walking towards the bus stop carrying their tin lunchboxes, some swinging it to and fro as they walked. It was her bus stop. Shailene ran a brush through her auburn hair until it glinted, then grabbed her lunchbox with the Betty Boop design and pushed the window up. She clambered out and was quickly out on the fire escape, seeking purchase on the first ladder with her little hands. One hand clutched her lunchbox, the inside clanging in protest. She pictured her Aladdin glass line thermos with Betty Boop peering from a taxi cab. She smacked her lips, already looking forward to the sugary hot coffee inside the thermos and the peanut butter and jelly sandwich cut in triangles. Somehow, the coffee tasted better with five teaspoons of sugar. The sandwich also tasted better when it was cut into triangles. Shailene was eager to see her friends from kindergarten and share with them that her father had finally unwrapped some strange objects he had brought back years ago at the end of the war before she was born. It arrived in a duffel bag, a bag tainted with unexplained stains, that was stowed away on an army plane her father returned on. She overheard when the neighbor came to see her mother one day that the duffel bag was stowed in a compartment which also held the bodies of soldiers killed in the war. Shailene didn't even know the duffel bag existed until a few weeks ago when she encountered it by accident in the kitchen pantry. Shailene discovered her father kept the bag stored in his parents' basement and moved it to the, her third floor dwelling when her grandparents finally died of old age. He stored it in the pantry next to the big oatmeal tin and the biscuit box from Kelsey's, the fancy department store in Hartford. Steve was forbidden to enter the pantry as he ate everything he could put his hands on. <laughs> and he st since he started walking, running his, grabby, running his grubby hands through the food stock shelves. Shailene was told to keep away after she kept nudging the canvas bag with the army stuff one afternoon while she was looking for Gibby's cheese curls. Consumed with a growing curiosity as Shailene was a precious child, she decided not to tell her mom nor her dad about what the army stuff made her feel. They'd never believe her anyway and move it to the building's basement if she was caught touching it before she had a chance to open it. But caught she was when her mother discovered her nudging the duffel bag again. That did it. That same afternoon, Colin came home. After a brief murmur conversation between her parents, Shailene saw her father pull something out of the duffel, quickly, quickly wrapping it in tarp. He entered her bedroom, climbed onto her bed, covers and all, uplifting her, upending her pink bear. He pulled down the retractable wood stairs to the drop-down ceiling above her bed and stowed something wrapped in the canvas tarp. He turned as he stepped down and made eye contact with her. Colin openly glared at his oldest, as if that was enough to forbid any questions from Shailene. In fact, her father, and even her mother, really spoke to her directly. They only spoke to their children as a group. Everything is equal, they said. What we say to you, we say to all of you, they said. Thus, Shailene kept to herself about herself and what she felt from the army stuff that, it, that had her dashing past her mother one afternoon after school when she thought the bag had moved. She could have sworn Annie, the youngest, saw it too. The baby's eyes got really huge. Huge in shock and surprise as the baby sat in the high chair. That was the afternoon when something inside the bag was taken out by her father. Millie had reached into the pantry, ignoring the children's reaction, and shoved the cheese curl bag from Gabby's into Shailene's hands, telling her to sit in the kitchen to eat it with her glass of milk. Unlike, a, unlike other mothers, Shailene observed, her mother didn't have a penchant for baking. So cheese curls came in lieu. So cheese world, okay, so cheese curls came in lieu of homemade goods. Steve tottered over, hands out, and Shailene doled out the snack. Annie by the crook of her arm waited patiently from the high chair. 
Whatever it was that Colin had stowed above her bed was dark and heavy. Meanwhile, their mother stood arms Kimbo, watching the three children follow with their eyes as they devoured one cheese curl after another. Millie's efforts to distract her children with food didn't work. After the wrapped object was stowed, her father pushed the retractable wood stair back into the recesses of the crawl space above Shailene's bed. Up with the ceiling's trap door, shut and out of reach. Gone from sight, but not from Shailene's mind. Now, there was a thing up there, right over her head, all night long. That was the night they came out. She noticed that now the pantry no longer had a heavy feeling when she opened it to get Archie's cookies from when she opened to get Archie's cookies from Woolworth or some snack from the corner store. When she nudged the bag that still had stuff in it, there was no longer any movement. Both Colin and Millie sat the three children down in the living room, like a meeting where the parents were the only ones who were allowed to talk. The children listened, the adults talked. Shailene took in everything her parents said. The rest of the bag, Mom said, Dad will open that evening for all to see. Right after everyone washed their faces and brushed their teeth. Shailene was still interested. But the one that, 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 that piqued her the most was when her dad had hit right over her bed in the crawl space of mice, cobwebs, spiders, and lizards. Over my head and above my bed, she reiterated with anxiety in her thoughts. What if they or it came out at night? It moved to the you know, it moved to the nudge of her. It moved to the nudge of her foot, so it must be alive. What is it eating in there? During the day, they wouldn't dare come out. At least that's what she thought. Out of the fire escape, she leaned, stepped down the first few rungs of the ladder, hanging on. She would later recall how she almost tasted the sandwich and the sugary coffee, but it was her. But it was her mind playing tricks on her, as they had fallen out when the lunchbox opened. Chapter 11 Tom walked around the house to the patio in the back, having left the barbecue early. It was getting to be 8 p.m., according to his watch, an old-fashioned wind-up. As he approached his own picnic table, he spotted his laptop still open, the mouse next to it, the papers and notebooks pinned down by a rock he'd picked up at a tourist shop. Tom looked down, breathing a sigh of relief as he clicked the mouse to shut down the computer. He glanced at the finished manuscript, which he had finally entitled, They Are Here, Eastern UFOs, and logged off. He would give his eyes a rest for a week or two and edit the document prior to uploading it to the Amazon portal. He turned, glancing at the family room past the glass door. Lost in memory, he studied his son's landscape painting of a snow scene in acrylic, hanging near the shelf filled with gnomes. Then, he snapped back pushed the laptop away from the edge of the picnic table, and faced the backyard. Tom pulled the Adirondack closest to him and sat. He pinched himself as if to check if he was awake this time. The gurgle in his stomach from the afternoon barbecue at the neighbors told him he was busily digesting the picnic food. No dream. He leaned back, allowing the gentle warm breeze to overtake him, but holding himself in check so he didn't fall asleep. He allowed his thoughts to wander, breathing in. He inhaled through his nose as he was coached by Ron, exhaling through his mouth. Repeat. He shut his eyes, feeling the placid breeze lull him into a deeper state of, of, of summonless. He opened his eyes. His thoughts formed the anthem. Asking, asking. I ask, please, crafts, ships in the sky. Tom observed the darkening tree line from his seat. He thought of his dream a few nights ago. A lucid dream. Contact? Or was it wishful thinking? Ships in the line in a dream. Only a dream. Not a CE3 or close encounter of the third kind. If it had been a third kind, there would have been mud and dead leaves clinging to his feet. Tom shut, his, shut himself off to the creeping feeling that despite his intentions to see them, they were only in dreams. His disappointment welled inside him. He mustered the energy to remain positive and hopeful, inhaling the scent of the grass as he cleared the negative thought from his head. He shut his eyes and hoped, Please, hear me. I need to see. A day stretched to a few. Tom sat every night after dinner to ask. Days went into a week, 
two weeks. Nothing. After lunch one day, Tom reopened his laptop and logged on. He read his manuscript, his book, searched for a cover, and found one courtesy of a friend from Ireland. The cover gave him a pleasant surprise. It was what he was looking for. That night, Tom edited his book one final time and shut the laptop. Weary and tired from the glare of the computer, he'll upload it tomorrow. It was Sunday. Chapter 12. Riverville, Connecticut, 1955. Shailene swung around to the next set of steps. She stepped down gingerly onto the next wrought iron step. She only had three more flights to go. Three stories high. She held onto the banister with her right hand and with her right hand and one clutched the tin and, and, and one clutched the tin box lunch. Lunchbox. The thermos moved and she felt her sandwich getting squished and its wax paper wrapping. She opened the lunchbox to peer and then shut the lid, shaking her head. Oh well, it'll taste the same no matter what, she surmised. She paused to push her hair out of her eyes, looking out at the next block where the children milled about waiting for the school bus. Suddenly, something violently pushed her from behind. Her lunchbox sailed, opening in flight. Down it went. It clanged onto the pavement. The Aladdin thermos followed, hitting the pavement on the bottom edge of the flask. Coffee spewed in a stream of brown flecks as it shattered. Shailene held onto a railing with one hand, then two. Her legs dangled as she looked down below in terror. Eyes wide, Shailene watched the passerby stop and look up and point. A woman screamed. Between the steel steps, she peered at her window. Mom, Mom. Inside a rush of feet, voices. Her mother and brother, Steve. Her mother and brother, Steve, almost four years old, peered out from the window. Spotting Shailene as she dangled, he pointed at Shailene. Mom, Shailene cried. What? Shaylee is falling, Steve yelled. Millie's eyes popped out as she looked out and pushed the window open. Oh, my God. Millie extricated herself from her apron and stepped onto the top of the fire escape. Hang on. Running down the first rung of the fire escape, Millie grabbed her daughter's wrist as she saw her daughter's little fingers peering in between the steps. She pulled. The other hand came off dangling and seeking purchase. Mom. Millie reached for Shailene's other hand, missed. Her mother reached again as Shailene's arm pinwheeled in an attempt to reach her mother's hand. She was losing her mother's hand in the other. No. Finally, Millie leaned further down. She grasped her daughter's arm. Shailene gra grasped her mother's hand, other hand, slipping. Millie pulled at Shailene's arm. Shailene's other hand firmly, finally reached, holding on. Millie grabbed both arms. She hoisted her daughter's small frame over the banister. Shailene embraced her mother, the scent of vanilla on her mother's neck. She inhaled in relief. What the hell were you thinking, Shailene? So, some... Someone pushed me, Mom. Who? I don't know. Didn't see. No one was here but you. There was a hand. Millie deposited Shailene back through the window. Steve's eyes were as large as teacups. Go through the front door. The bus is here, Millie hissed. Shailene darted down the hallway, down the stairs, out into the street. The bus was pulling away as Millie stood examining the fire escape. Don't do that again, Millie yells as Shailene dashes after the bus. Below Millie, three stories down on the sidewalk pavement, the shattered lunchbox tin lay dented and open. The thermos shattered. Coffee trailed as the gawking passerby gasps. Or clapped. I'm sorry, clapped. 13. Shailene. I never could get close to my parents. I was the oldest, and I was so I was protected. So I protected my two siblings, Steve and Annie. Annie was only two, maybe three, when things started happening. Someone told me, I forgot who, that it might have had something to do with what my dad brought home from the war. That thing above my bed that he stored in the drop ceiling. In that nasty crawl space, I knew it. Shortly after my dad moved the thing into the drop ceiling, I stayed awake wondering what he put up there over my bed and why. It was so mysterious to me. Annie was too young, blissfully unaware that our lives were not as were, were not as ideal as a baby's bassinet. 
It was just a few days before I would enter first grade, before the incident, the fire escape. Annie's bed was outside Steve's door facing our parents' bedroom. Mine was next to Steve's, closest to the kitchen. Annie was too young back then to stay up, but I wasn't. I was already six. I heard my parents talking that night and stepped out into the hall to listen. I tiptoed past Annie in her crib to open Steve's door. Annie was fast asleep, but he was awake, staring at something in the ceiling, shaking. I whispered his name and his face squeezed into an explosion of what would have been tears once his eyes made contact with mine. I put my finger to my lips before he could give it. Okay, okay. jumped on me hang on before he could give a cry and he inched back his way noiselessly out of his little bed and patted towards me on the braided rug he was very happy to see me we crept towards the edge of the hallway where there were a few steps leading down to the kitchen to spy on the conversation dad used to tell my mom stories after dinner when we were supposed to be in bed asleep this particular night it was about his time as a soldier in the war against the nazis dad had quite a story to tell which is the entire book itself. Where do I begin? Dad sat at the kitchen, wiping his formica, wiping the formica top with the rag as Mom poured a cup of coffee from the stove. While he watched her, he recounted a story that I couldn't believe was real. I guess later on that story gave me nightmares, as a lot of my first ones had to do with the people that that the war he was in the war he was talking about. I think maybe that was the start that thing coming out of the ceiling when dad started talking about it or maybe that thing came out first and gave me nightmares later i don't know it could simply be because he had moved something out of the bag he brought home i really don't know dad served as a gunner inside the tank he called it a sherman which only lasted a month before his companions who were inside with him were ambushed while he was outside of all things washing his face in a broken fountain Someone, more likely, more likely a German soldier, snuck up while no one was looking and threw a grenade bomb into the open steel door up top. Inside the tank, the guy who loaded the artillery supposedly lost his head, the other an arm, and the commander dashed, and the commander dashed out in flames before he was gunned down. It was the sound of guns that brought back my dad to the tank. He dived for cover behind rubble from a nearby building as, as he saw the tank go up in flames. He ran to get closer and saw the soldier, whose arm had been blown off, pull himself up with one with one arm, one shredded and hanging useless. Dad raced raced to the burning tank, using his coat to cover the flames and dragged the man out of the ground. The man bled to death. Dad was used to small craft spaces that ended up with three or four other grown men in dirty uniforms. Now all of them were dead, and he was left alone. He was assigned to a brand new Pershing. In his final months of duty, and that's when Dad reaped his revenge for his comrades, who became his friends, where they spent the night and day in crap space living in fear. The Pershing, of course, came with a new set of soldiers. His new comrades in arms and would his new comrades in arms and would have a lot of artillery and such. Walking talk walking talkies, I think he called them. They would talk in coves to avoid the enemy from hearing or interpreting what the orders were for them from men who were bigger people people of higher rank, who had uniforms much better than theirs, more medals, and more shoe polish on their shoes. Dad told Mom the higher-up shoes were hardly dirty as they never came out to get dirty in the field, like Dad and his, his battalion or team or whatever words he used to describe the group of men who huddled inside the tank with him day after day. Obviously, they, my dad, and his tank mates slept in the tank too. He was pretty angry at the higher-ups had better working conditions, like rationals, as little Steve would call it, referring to the food and occasional snacks like chocolates and cigarettes. The men of higher rank slept in real beds while they were getting shot at and bombed at at night. I remember as we listened at the top of the steps how Steve huddled next to me wanting to know if things were so bad, why on earth Dad went. Why on earth was an expression Steve learned from Mom. He talked with a lisp like a baby. Well, I guess back then Steve was just was just a baby. Steve told me maybe he would go too to the battalion when he became a grown up. 
I told him to go to sleep. Especially before our parents heard him talking about giving us away. Talking and giving us away. His eyes were folding anyway. And it was past 11. And it was my time for some shut-eye too. The stories in the kitchen were now getting really awful. Then Dad started talking about what was really in the duffel bag. I instantly perked up. Dad began talking about people. His tank battalion. The four others who shared his tank. And finally the German soldiers they encountered when they were out looking for food. It was his second year of deployment, and they were tired, hungry, and grungy as expected. Dad was dreaming about a nice steak and a steaming pot of mashed potatoes when what they had dreaded seeing actually happened. This time, without the shelter of the tank. Close up and personal, he told Mom. Chapter 14 Tim sat in the driver's seat, watching his dad enter the house. It was close to 9.30 at night. They had just spent an entire day discussing the next haunted site, purported to be replete with apparitions. With Tom riding shotgun, Tim had driven by the area, finally passing the cemetery where several soldiers were buried. Then, since Tom was leaning towards the study of UFOs, they began talking about his decision to simply meditate and ask alone, instead of getting into the group of four meeting in real time with the members. Tom ventured to tell his son about his dreams. The American Indians by the bed, the object in the forest with, with the being of light, and the blog where he refrained from discussing his dreams. They agreed it was a good idea to leave it off print. They also agreed not to discuss it with his mother present. It would only trouble her. Tim watched as the light in the family room remained lit, then the stairs, then finally the master bedroom. He turned the engine on. Assured they were both safe in their home. He drove past the Gerber daisies in full bloom, the pony bush beginning to bud, and turned the wheel towards the road that led to the town proper of Troy. Tom, Tom prepared for bed and walked down in his pajamas to the family room, remembering he had left his laptop on the coffee table. A creature of habit, he grabbed it to return it to his study and writing room upstairs near the room. He would upload the manuscript, his first book, on Amazon tonight before retiring to bed. He had several graphs and decided on a trade paperback, and only that. As he followed the laptop, a show caught his eye on History Channel as he prepared to switch off the TV. It was Ancient Aliens. Hun, will you come here, please? Rita asked. Sure. Tom muted the TV. Rita was looking out the living room window, which faced the street. You see that? She points. Tom joined his wife at the window. Two twin orbs, large, bright orange, glowing. They sailed past the window left to right. Whoa. The orbs vanished. What? Two more appeared. They sailed past, as if on parade. Then they vanished, too. Are they? Rita's eyes were glued to the scene as she turned to Tom. They looked like fireballs. Two more appeared, closer this time, glowing, then skimmed the sky. Tom inhaled. Then one. Nine total. He dashed at the front door and stepped out onto the porch. They were gone, vanished to nowhere. That night, Tom uploaded the first of what would become the first of a series of three. They are here, East Coast. It became live on Amazon as he puzzled over the sighting, out, the sighting outside of his window. A coincidence, Tom surmised. Tom scanned the internet. Facebook forums and emails. Diligently, he watched for his next opportunity to attend another conference, this time to share his book to, to the world. He was now analyzing patterns between sightings and weather. Then, suddenly it came to Tom. His dream where he watched himself look out the window at ships in a line, stationary in the sky as if waiting. Ships spanning the sky in twos just sailed past his living room window just hours ago. This time, it wasn't a dream. Chapter 15, February 1945, Stuttgart, Germany. Colin Schiedrim peered into the viewfinder, dusty and smeared with fingerprints. He dug into one pocket, producing a wrinkled handkerchief, and wiped the lens. It was eerily quiet outside. A strange and foreboding feeling made the hairs in the back of his neck twinge. His stomach empty now for four, four days except for whatever food scraps and vegetation they found, gurgle, no gurgle noisily. 
He turned to the mountain's left, Bill, who chewed on a cigarette while idly wiping frost from frost that had accumulated on the glasses. Despite the lack of ventilation, it was cold inside the tank's cramped space in the dead of winter. A cough above him made Colin turn his head up at the lieutenant, his uniform denoting the, his higher rank. He appeared to be looking out through the open porthole. Colin held, held his breath. The last time the other tank and their battalion did that, one man's hat was shot off and dead of the tank ahead of them in the convoy. The lieutenant stepped down, beard unkempt, eyes bloodshot. He looked older than his 23 years as he huddled in his seat just two feet away. Sir? The voice of the ammunition man behind Colin. Yes, Sergeant, the lieutenant asked. It looks dead quiet. So I saw. I'll go up first, sir. Stay frosty. The man shifted his position behind Colin to unwrap himself. Colin felt a distinct tap on the shoulder. The lieutenant, his eyes gray and flecked, focused on him. Let's go, Colin said to him in a reply to the unspoken order. Colin pulled himself out of the open porthole and into the cold morning, sedged with petrol fumes, mud, and something he couldn't quite define. It smelled so sweet in a sickening way, the odor permeated his throat. Colin gagged, but the scent didn't drive his hunger away. Instead, he followed his, am he followed his ammunition guide down a road strewn with rubble, dead birds, animals, tattered remnants of what appeared to be furniture, into a building whose days had appeared, and had appeared numbered. Closer to the interior of the building, they both looked up at a desperate sky, the sound of artillery bumping the distance. Deep gray smoke billowed from the same hill distant from, from some hill distant, the sight of another bombing. In the back of Colin's mind, he was shocked at the aftermath of destruction, so epic and so encompassing in scope, but also feeling of uh, a feeling of hope assailed him since news of the retreat and imminent fall of Germany. He was here. On, the, on, on their enemy's soil, a demolished street in Stuttgart to witness it. Colin paused as, as he eyed the younger soldier poking at debris with the end of his rifle, searching for food as he watched for ordnance that might signal a live mine. He looked down at his own booted, booted feet, saw a glint near it, and stooped down to retrieve it. It was a silver swastika, a symbol in red enamel bordered to silver, a pin. He turned it and noted the smell of something redolent like grapes. A lot of grapes, right? But broken. He looked down and saw a lapel. Edging closer, he prodded the lapel, exposing the stiff collar of a Nazi uniform. Behind it was something green-gray molded over. He poked at it, the texture yielding to the end of his rifle. Then a breeze blew toward Colin as he poked. Behind it was a sickening and overpowering smell of putrefaction, like a dead animal sitting in the sun for days. Suddenly, Colin straightened, jettisoning a stream of vomit. The star-stiff collar, part of a German uniform of rank, still had the neck of the decapitated person inside. Colin wiped his mouth with a filthy sleeve, heaving. He observed in terror that he had been standing on the flattened body of a dead German soldier whose neck was exposed with its collar still buttoned. Colin stumbled away, gaining purchase using his rifle as a stick to steady himself and move ahead. Ahead, the young soldier wavered and pointed to the inside of the building. Colin slowly walked toward the man, forced to avert his eyes for fear of encountering more bodies. But he couldn't, as he had to watch for mines which could have been left for the Russians and Americans. Inside the skeleton of the building, the sky yawed above them, large birds watching and pecking at something. Colin realized they were feasting on carrion, but it signaled the possibility of food as well. They, they stepped through the mire of war, steel rods poking where the foundation was immolated and destroyed by bombs, furniture like sticks pointing to a despairing sky in mock silence. Framed objects and pictures in pieces, broken pots, Cushions yielding their cotton completed the detrius, the evidence of lives interrupted in the name of war. Then, in one corner room, they found the sink. Cola's companion turned on the faucet. Something gurgled. Out came an orange liquid and thin stream. The young man placed his rifle to the side and eagerly washed his face with the rusty water. 
As Colin approached, eager to refill his canteen, he looked at the man's right. Baskets, tins, rotten bread. There was food here. Chapter 16 Tom watched the growing fan base followers, followers expand. His book had been out for a few months now, and he remained vigilant over reports coming in from people. A thread of comments appeared on his Facebook page. He clicked on the tab of, uh, of his website and began typing his newsletter, following on the heels of his blog, which would form the basis of his second book. The phone began ringing as he responded to more reports. He sat back in the study, watching the bright constellation, the Big Dipper, from, you know, form in the clear sky. He clicked on the third tab, and the manuscript of Word Perfect, 12 font, appeared on the screen. He was halfway through the second book on page 108. This one had states like Michigan, Iowa, Idaho, and Colorado, the Midwest. Tom's eyes kept closing. He felt he needed to break from the screen. He glanced down at his watch, shocked to discover that it was close to dinner time. As if on cue, Tom smelled a roast. It was. Dinner's on, yelled Rita from downstairs. Tom stood, powering down his laptop. Coming. I hope you like me, love. Tom ran down the steps, two at a time. He turned the corner as Rita had just shut the microwave. Buttered mashed potatoes, corn on the cob, and a large salad. You serve, Rita said, handing him a salad fork and spoon. Tom walked over. Two maps of the U.S. sat on one end of the table. What's that for? Rita queried. Hmm, my next project. A road trip? Nah, not right now. Soon? Tom paused as he took a bite out of the meatloaf. What do you have in mind, hon? Rita smiled. How about you coming with me as I'm escorting a tour bus to the lake... Let's <laughs> see if I can say this. Winnipesaukee region. Somebody tell me if I said it, said it right. Winnipesaukee region. August? Tom paused, counting, his, counting in his head. I think the book should be done by then. Oh, you can go. Tell me you can go. I can. My Midwest region book should be up. Perfect. We can celebrate the launch of your second book there. That's a plan, hon. Tom awakened. The room was bathed in an ethereal light from a full moon. He watched his wife putting away dry clothes she had harvested from the dryer. The scent of clean cotton filled the room as she opened and laid down as she opened and laid down clean and folded clothes in the recesses of the drawers. Tom turned to look at the clock on the nightstand, 3 a.m. Now, fully awake, he began to think through the next chapter of his book, in his book, mentally ticking off the accounts. Then his thoughts wandered into the idea of how to create oxygen. Oxygen on a foreign planet. The only place host to life as we know it is Earth. Water, oxygen, essential ingredients to life forms. How would we manufacture oxygen? How would we sustain life on a planet whose atmosphere has no oxygen or water? To wander and live on alien soil without the need for a spacesuit. Long ago, it was all science fiction, but now it may be plausible. Surely there was a way to sustain life on alien soil. All we need to do is create oxygen. Oxygen and water. Water. Chapter 17, February 1945. Stuttgart, Germany. Water. Clean water was finally coming out of the spigot. Nearby there were oxygen masks, the type that were put on in case of gas attack, or perhaps grimly, a gas chamber. We need water, oxygen, food. Colin was obsessed with inhaling air that wasn't poisoned by the fumes from burning tanks, buildings, even people. He yearned for an open space with the sounds of trees blowing to a wind ripe with dew, the aftermath of fresh rain shower the light of clouds untainted by the smoke of destruction. Everywhere he looked, there was debris, singed debris, burning debris and brackish water. He satisfied his thirst with the stream of clear water, refilling his canteen. Then he looked around while the young soldier began grabbing plums and stages of rot, bread rimmed with mold and tins of fish. Colin grabbed a few of the gas masks and weeded through the plethora of broken crockery, pots, furniture, and detritus. The young man, whose last name he still, he still had to recall, did the same. Colin wondered what the birds, vultures, and wildlife were feeding on. He shuddered involuntarily. 
The two men filled all the bottles and canteens they had, running recklessly to and fro to the tank with glee. Then they turned their attention to the kitchen drawers, opening them. Okay, kitchen drawers. Opening them, they found dried strips of lamb and beef. Colin turned and waved to the rest of his tank mates, and the lieutenant finally emerged with Bill, a name he remembered because of what happened next. Above them, the vultures sent a new prey. The drawers of meat excluding lost a raw flesh. The birds flew closer and landed, watching with avidity. Bill, a young 18-year-old, was overweight. He emerged and joined the group in the crumbled kitchen corner of the building and began stuffing pieces of dried meat into his mouth and in his pockets. Bill moved away from the rest of the group as he expanded his foraging to a nearby area within the building. Clearly, his desire flowed for nutrition as his overweight body screamed for sustenance. Then, seconds later, Colin heard him yelling. Nine, 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 Bill yelled in terror. A stranger's voice murmured back in German, I'm not going to hurt you. Colin dashed to Bill's side, where he and two other soldiers found Bill holding a chair, as if to block a bullet. Across from him, a German soldier in a Nazi uniform was laying against the far wall, attempting to reach for a pistol on the ground. The man was clearly injured, as he was pale sweaty, and had a glowing red splotch on his abdomen. When the Nazi saw the group, he immediately raised his arms to surrender. Colin walked over, stunned. The man was crying, quaking in terror. Hilf mir, hilf mir, help me, help me. In one swift movement, Colin grabbed the pistol on the ground and shot the man point blank. No, Bill screamed as the man's eyes glazed over. Colin turned to Bill as if mesmerized. He was surrendering, Bill whispered on the verge of tears. You know how many people are dead or mangled because of them? No. The lieutenant approached, pushed the German soldier with his foot. The man fell to the side from his sitting position. His blood formed a pool on the ground. Too late, too much, the lieutenant said without feeling. Colin examined the pistol in his hands, turning it around, weighing it as if he was chopping. Let's get chow. Colin pocketed the gun, picked up a bag filled with food, and strode back to the tank. Okay, we're going to skip that. Bill screamed, crying. Colin turned. Whose side are you on? Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Um, we're up to Chapter 18. And I hope you have... Let me get over here. Okay. We're up to Chapter 18, so I hope you guys enjoy enjoyed this book. It's, you know, as usual, Anna Maria's got a really good book, good, good writing style and everything. I will see you tomorrow. Uh, we're going to be here. Well, I'm not going to be here at 6 Like I said, um, we are going to be showing the uh, Tinker, the Gina Rock Tinkerbell story. And that will be over on YouTube. I'll get the links up to that shortly tonight. Tomorrow, Karen Clark and I are going to be launching our uh, show on YouTube. Or one of a couple shows that we're going to be doing on YouTube. Uh, not YouTube. I'm sorry. Kind of tired. On TikTok. All right. Yeah. Karen Clark and I are going to be launching our stuff on TikTok tomorrow. So if you're not a member of TikTok, you might want to, you know, you feel like you want to be a member over there, feel free to go over there. Um, I might also add the, the, the shows we have on uh, on YouTube. I've seen people do that. You know, a lot of TikTokers do that. So I'm going to ask around and see how we can do that and take those shows to add them over to YouTube. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. It is Sunday, start of a new week. And uh, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Uh, like I said, we always say we're equal opportunity here at California Hunts Radio. But anyway, thank you all, and I will still and I, I will probably be in the chat room tomorrow night. I'm not sure, but uh, I hope you enjoy the uh, Gina Rock interview. I had a blast doing it, and I think you're going to learn a lot about circus performers and, and and people like that. So I will see you. I will see you on the video tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. And I will see some of the TikTok folks that listen in. I will see you guys on TikTok at some point tomorrow. I don't know what time yet, but uh, I will see you over at TikTok. Anyway, thanks for coming and have a great evening, everybody.